Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Again, we're glad to have you here with us. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we want to extend a special welcome to you. And uh, we have worshipped already. We've had our, our focus where we wanted to be already, which is on Jesus Christ and on the message of the cross and salvation in Christ. And so we're just going to continue with this theme. <clears throat> and this is where we are anyway in the Gospel of John. So go to John chapter 5 in your Bibles. And uh, remember that at the end of our passage last week in verses 17 and 18, right after the, the, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, we have this charge leveled against Christ. It's a charge of blasphemy in verses 17 and 18. And in verse 17, it says that Jesus answered. And that, uh, that word answered is a, a word that we see in some ancient legal papers. Basically, what we're saying is Jesus began his defense against this charge. And so in John chapter 5, verses 17 to 47, it's basically one long self-testimony, one long defense, one long explanation from Jesus about who he is. And Jesus explained his action on the Sabbath as being consistent with the, the Sabbath rest of God the Father. Jesus' argument for healing on the Sabbath basically is... You know, God is, is still engaged, even though there, the Sabbath has been instituted. God is still engaged in doing good, in doing good for, for men. The laws of nature still function on the Sabbath. Uh, God's providence, God's common blessing are still in play on the Sabbath. And so Jesus parallels his actions with the Father's. Works of mercy are in line with the Sabbath because the Sabbath is made for man's benefit, right? <clears throat> but... This explanation doesn't quite do it for the Jews, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They, they pounce on Jesus' words, my father. And what happened really is that when Christ claimed to be the son, when he claimed God as his own personal father, they thought that he was claiming a unique relationship with God. They thought that he was saying that God was his own father and that this was an assertion of equality with God. That Christ was claiming to be equal with God. And that's exactly what Christ was claiming. That's exactly what he was doing, just in case I was making you nervous. <laughs> this is exactly what Christ was saying, and they, they got it. I mean, a little bit shocking that they got it, but they got it, right? Now, they, they didn't accept it. They didn't believe it. But they understood exactly what Christ was saying. And if there had been a misunderstanding, Christ could have corrected them, but he didn't. Because their understanding of his words were correct. And instead of actually pausing to consider the claims that Jesus was making to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah of Israel, they just simply focus in on the fact that he is violating their traditions. And they're, they're angry. If they're angry because Jesus violated the Sabbath, imagine how livid they are about his claim of equality with the Father. And they're basically saying, you know, you, you talk as if when God acts, you act. You talk as if, you know, you and God are like, you know, working together in the, in the same business. You make it sound like you and God are the same. 
And Christ is saying in this passage, exactly. Exactly. Christ is teaching them that, that though him and the Father are distinguished, yet they're identical. That the, the Godhead works together in purpose and function. And throughout the public ministry of Christ, he makes these explicit claims concerning himself over and over again. He claims to be the Messiah of Israel, and he claims to be God come in the flesh. And so here we have these charges of blasphemy, these charges of, uh, of Sabbath violation, and this becomes the basis for the conflict against Jesus. And our passage today is kind of Christology 101, but it's taught by Jesus himself. Remember when we had, uh, you know, a master class in evangelism taught by Jesus himself earlier in the Gospel of John? Well, now we're going to go to Christology, and it's going to be taught by Jesus himself. And this is Christ's declaration of his own deity. So let me just kind of unpack for you a little bit of an outline here of what's coming. In verses 19 to 20, Christ claims to be unified with the Father in his activities. In verse 21, and again in verses 24 to 26, Christ claims the power to give eternal life. Then in verse 22, and again in verses 27 to 30. Christ claims the role of divine judgment. And in verse 23, he claims to be worthy of divine honor. So listen for these things as we go. Unified with the Father in his activities. The power to give eternal life. The role of divine judgment. The claim to be worthy of divine honor, of worship. <clears throat> Look at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Notice, first of all, the repetition of the name, the title, son. It's repeated 11 times in our passage today. <clears throat> this emphasis on relationship. This is emphasis on relationship with the father that was not particularly appreciated by these Jewish religious leaders. They recognized this as a claim to deity and they, they called it out as such. But Christ is calling it out too. Christ is not trying to hide this word, this title, this relationship. And he's not trying to hide what it means and what he means by it. He's calling careful attention to these declarations, to his statements about who he is. In fact, he says, truly, truly, calling our attention to it. Listen to this. This is truth. This is important. This is true truth. He uses the same phrase in chapter 1, a couple times in chapter 3, and here in chapter 5, twice. But maybe the greater question of verse 19 is not just about the fact that Christ is the Son, but what does it say about the Son? Well, it says the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And we see this throughout the Gospel of John. That in his incarnation, Jesus lived as a man. He was submissive to the Father. 
He lived a life dependent upon the Spirit. He was obedient to the Scriptures. He was sustained by prayer. And we see his humble submission. Even back in John 4, 34, Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We're going to see it again in verse 30 of John chapter 5. I can do nothing on my own initiative. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, uh, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And again in John chapter 12, verse 50, in John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Christ is continually asserting that his work is to do the will of the Father. Now here's the question. Here's the concern, maybe the, the moment of pause. At, at, at first read here in verse 19, maybe it seems like it kind of refutes Jesus' claim to equality with God. I mean, if the Son only does what he sees God the Father doing, <clears throat> you know, these, these statements do show us order within the Godhead. They show us the subordination of the incarnate Son. But don't miss the fact that they also are declaring the unity of the Son and the Father. Jesus is not on earth working his own plan, you know, in opposition to the Father, right? There's, you know, God the Father, and then there's, you know, Jesus, and he's gone rogue, and he's doing his own thing. No, there is one plan. There is unity of essence, of plan, of nature. I appreciate the way one commentator describes this. He says, submission does not imply inferiority. Equality and submission are not contrary ideas. You can, you can be submissive and still be equal. And so it is with the Father and the Son. Jesus is equal to God the Father, but he's submissive to God the Father. And that's what he's talking about here. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does in like manner. And so there's orderliness in the Godhead and there's equality. Jesus is co-equal with God. He partakes of the same essence, the same nature. But within the Godhead, there is order. And the Father delegates certain responsibilities to the Son. And we're going to highlight some of those this morning. Look at verse 20. It's the Father's love for his Son that leads him to show the Son all things that he is doing so that he can reveal them to men. So here... Christ comes incarnate, the God-man, God come to earth in, in human flesh to, to reveal God's plan, to share the truth of God's plan with men. And he's doing that here, even in his teaching, even in his defense and his explanation. <clears throat> and it says, you know, you know, people have already seen Jesus performing miracles, but they're going to see even greater things. They're going to have even greater cause, it says, to marvel and understand the context. They just saw him heal a man who was crippled for 38 years. And bigger things are coming. Pretty incredible. The verse 21 says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. So what are the greater works? What greater things could Christ do? What is it that's coming? Well, how about raising the dead? And as we go on, we'll see that God the Father has given another work to Christ, and that is divine judgment. Do you want to see something great? you want to see something in Christ to, to marvel at? Something that will just blow you back? How about the raising the dead and the pronouncing of divine judgment given to this man, Jesus Christ? And here, the, the raising the dead 
probably refers both to, to physical resurrection and spiritual regeneration. So again, another clear statement of the equality of the Son with the Father. There's a pattern here. There's a pattern here where Christ claims divine prerogatives as his own. In other words, he says that he can do things or has the right to do things or simply does things that we say only, only God can do that. And again, this is the moment where, you know, if I had control of the narrative, I'd make a little bell ding, you know, when they say, hey, you can't do that. Only God can do that. You know, ding, 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 you win a prize. That's right. Only God can do that. Therefore, right? This is exactly what's happening here. This, this pattern. And the Jews are accusing Jesus of making himself equal with God. And Christ doesn't deny the charge. And look, look at his statement. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, what? Even so, the son also gives life. Now this would be an absurd claim for a mere man, for a, a mortal man to make. I mean, this is about as strong a claim to deity as you could have. The son also gives life to whom he wishes. Well, he wished to give life to the nobleman's son. And he did. He wished, he, he chose to heal one man out of a crowd of disabled people at the pool of Bethesda. And so he could be talking here about bodily resurrection, and we're going to see the kind of the ultimate example of bodily resurrection in the story of Lazarus in chapter 11, the death and resurrection of Lazarus, not to mention Christ's own resurrection. But it goes beyond that. It, Bodily resurrection, physical healing, physical life, physical resurrection, yes. But more impressively, Christ can bring the spiritually dead to new life. Amen. To eternal life. Now look at verses 22 and 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. These verses highlight, and, and, and kind of as a, a rarity in the Gospel of John, uh, an, an aspect, an, an eschatological aspect of the ministry of Christ, of Christ's activities. That is, they give us a, a peek, a glimpse into the future. And that is that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. That is, one day everyone will stand before Christ in judgment. The saved through the rapture and, and, and to the Bema Seat, to the, the judgment uh, of what we've done in Christ. The unsaved through the final resurrection to the great white throne judgment. And what a sobering thought it ought to be for us this morning that the judge of all the earth. Imagine these men, imagine these Pharisees, these religious leaders, the judge of, of all men, of, of all the earth is standing right in front of these religious men. And he's standing there and he's asserting his authority, but they don't recognize him. They don't believe him. In like manner, consider the men who crucified Christ. This has always been a, a remarkable thought to me as we consider the role of Christ as judge. 
Think about the men who literally crucified Christ, who, who drove the nails into his hands and feet. Because they seemed at that moment to have so much power over him as they carried out his death sentence. They, they executed him. And Christ went as a lamb to the slaughter. But Christ will return like a lion to carry out judgment. And those very men will stand before him as judge. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine that scene? And the reality is it's no different with us. Because really we are the ones who caused him to be nailed to the cross. It was my sin that held him there. And this message of Christ as judge, this biblical message of judgment is not a new message. This didn't originate with the Apostle John. It didn't originate with Jesus Christ. Starting all the way in the Old Testament, there's a strong message of judgment all the way through Scripture. It's the parts that we like to read quickly over, but judgment was the message of Enoch and Jonah and David and Moses and Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Moses. I mean, just, just go back and read through all the prophets. It's a mes message of warning of God's judgment and wrath. Because we have a righteous God. And it doesn't stop in the New Testament. I know some like to view the, the Old Testament as a different kind of God or as some kind of you know, harsh God. And we come to the New Testament and then we get the warm, fuzzy version. And isn't that nice? The problem is judgment is the message of the New Testament as well. That's right. It's the message that Jesus spoke. He spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. In fact, Jesus spoke more of hell than anyone in Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount, full of warnings about God's wrath. We look at Matthew chapter 7, we read about the wide road and the narrow road, and isn't this a nice illustration for us to understand we need to be on the narrow road and not on the wide road, but don't forget where the wide road leads. It leads to destruction, it leads to judgment. And there's coming a time when the lost will be in their resurrected bodies, resurrected by Christ, to face the pains of the judgment of Christ. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Just a little bit of an aside here, just a little rabbit trail to make sure as we think about coming before Christ in judgment and we think of Christ as the, the judge of all mankind, that we understand the, the seriousness of this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, pick it up partway through verse 7. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is the judgment of Christ on those who have rejected him, that they are forced then to pay the penalty for their own sin because they've rejected Christ's payment on their behalf. And they pay this penalty in a special place that God has created for this very purpose, and that is in hell. We do a, a quick survey of what Scripture says about hell, how Scripture describes hell. It's 
described as unquenchable fire, outer darkness, torment, a, a furnace, destruction we see here. The bottomless pit, a lake of fire, and, and probably the, the most concerning description of all we see even here in verse 9, and that is that it's eternal. The most frightening aspect of hell is eternality. And this is a doctrine, the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of the, the eternality of hell that many are denying today, even though the scripture has such clear testimony on it. We need to warn, not deny. Every time we proclaim the bad news, in a sense, of, of God's wrath, of, of hell, of, of God's coming judgment, flows out of the righteousness of God, we quickly follow it up with the good news. In fact, there's a sense in which the bad news makes the good news great. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, listen. Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Through faith in Christ, we can know the forgiveness of God. Turn over to, to 1 John chapter 5. I might be getting a little ahead of myself, but turn to 1 John 5. I want to look at verses 11 to 13, and I just kind of want you to have them in your mind. As we go through the rest of our, our passage in John 5, because you're just going to hear this same thing echoed in John chapter 5 as you see in 1 John 5. 1 John 5, starting in verse 11. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. These two choices set before us, these two destinies, these, these two decisions, eternal death or eternal life. Go back to John chapter 5. And again, in verse 23, we have the, the reason that God has given this authority to the Son, this authority to, to raise the dead, this authority to judge the world. And the reason is that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, this is huge, right? This is a big, important statement. It has to be one of, the, one of the clearest statements, one of the clearest proofs in the Bible of the deity of Jesus Christ. Because throughout the Bible, we're taught that God alone is to be worshipped, right? So if God alone is to be worshipped, and Christ is to be worshipped, you coming with me? I mean, this verse just boils it down for us. And, and it gets to the heart of the most important question that we can ask in life, and that is, what do you do with Jesus? I think so often as I seek to share the gospel and, and you know, there's kind of that moment when you, when you want to evangelize, when you want to get to the gospel of someone, that, that kind of moment of turning the corner, you know what I'm talking about? Like the awkward part of like, how do we get, how do I get into this, right? How do I get from like, uh, crazy weather we're having, huh, to, you know, eternal destinies and, you know, Christ on the cross and all this kind of stuff, right? 
one of the things I always look for is, you know, if I if I can get, you know, talking about church, like, do you go to church anywhere, you know, or are you raised in a, you know, in a religious family, you know, th those kind of things. And, and if someone goes to church, one of my first questions is, what does your church teach about who Jesus is? Because that kind of gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? That's going to tell me a lot about where this person is and, and what this person believes. And if you want to know if a religion is true, if you want to know if a gospel is pure, if you want to know if your own heart is right, you answer this question. What do you do with Jesus? Who do you say he is? And there are a lot of answers. There's an old famous statement from C.S. Lewis where he puts it pretty plainly, and I know a lot of you are familiar with it, but for those of you that aren't, it's worth repeating. Lewis is, is speaking in response to the idea that so many have, and I'm sure you've heard this line of thinking that Jesus was a, he was a good teacher. He was a, a good man, maybe even a good prophet, but no more. And Lewis says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. Some say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. That's right. So here we're seeing this in John chapter 5 today. Jesus claims are clear and we are forced with a choice to make a choice turn back again to first john first john chapter 2 verses 22 and 23 john says here who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And this is what we're seeing in John chapter 5 and in verse 23. Notice again that in talking about honoring the Son as the Father, what Christ really did is he turned the tables on the Jews who were accusing him of blasphemy. You follow this? They're accusing him of dishonoring God, of blaspheming God. And he basically flips it around on them and says, no, you're dishonoring God. Remember, he's speaking to the, the scribes and Pharisees in this whole thing. And they think they're really honoring God. I mean, if anyone is honoring God, they're honoring God. In fact, they're honoring God so much that they're honoring God more than God even said to honor him because they're adding their own rules and their own legalistic ways and their own system. And they want to make sure that everyone knows that they're honoring God more than anyone else is honoring God. 
But it kind of makes me hearken back to Christ's words of the, to the woman at the well about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And you see, in, in, in all of their system, and all of their legalism, they were just missing two things, spirit and truth. And this is the danger of so many organized religions today. That there's all this form and all this function and all these hoops to jump through and all these boxes to check. But the, the spirit is missing. And the truth is missing. And so all of this to say this, this verse puts Christ on an absolute equal level with God and requires that we give him the same honor. Which they were failing to do. Listen, if you never realized before who Jesus Christ is, consider this verse carefully. Jesus is God. Come to earth in human flesh to live as a man and to die on the cross for you. And verses 24 to 30 continue to give us more doctrinal information, but don't miss the personal aspect as well personal invitation, not just to know about Christ, not just to see the claims of Christ, but a personal invitation to find life in Christ. Verse 24 says again, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Doesn't that sound just like 1 John 5? It's the good news. Again, the, the judgment that's been given to Christ is escapable. God doesn't desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And verse 24 shows us that ultimately this is simply a matter of hearing and believing. Hearing Christ and believing in Christ for who he is. And his message, and this is exactly what these men he was speaking to were refusing to do, but here we have it recorded for ourselves. So we have the same choice to make that they had. And since Jesus has the unity and he has the, the divine prerogatives that we saw in verses 19 to 23, right? we can trust his message. And this means that you can have, look, look at how it's phrased here, you can have in the present eternal life. We tend to think like eternal life starts when we die, right? We, we die and we enter into eternal life. No. Eternal life starts at the moment of conversion, at the moment of salvation. You become alive in Christ. You're a new creature in Christ. Suddenly you're, you're able to worship God, which you were never able to do before. You're literally able to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. You become this new person and you begin eternal life and you have no fear that judgment will ever come in the future because a Christian has already passed from the realm of death into another life which also means that assurance of salvation begins now it begins at the moment of salvation Romans chapter 8 says there is therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
So we're alive together with Christ because we have eternal life. We have this newness of life. We have no fear, no worry of coming before judgment, uh, coming before Christ in regards to our eternal destiny. And then look at verses 25 to 29. 25 to 29 is talking about two resurrections. So it's kind of, kind of giving us a little bit more detail about the same idea of judgment. The idea is that everyone will be resurrected. Every soul, every person is eternal. You ever think about that? There's a sense in which we might say that everyone has eternal life. Everyone is an eternal being that lives on forever. Or maybe better to phrase it as some people have eternal life and some have eternal death. Thinking of death as separation from God. And again, the Son, Jesus Christ, is the one with the power to resurrect. So, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so verse 25, Jesus' life-giving omnipotence can call a person out of the grave. Think about it this way. Jesus can call someone from physical death to life. He can call someone from spiritual death to life. He can call someone from eternal death to life. And by the way, the, the words, a time is coming. See the phrase, a time is coming, occurs four times in John. Tells me that maybe, maybe the goal is to get us ready. Right? It's coming. It's coming. Time is coming. Okay? This is what I do at, at my house with my children. We are leaving in 15 minutes. Okay? And then what do I say? We are leaving in 10 minutes. And then what do I say? We are leaving in five minutes. We are leaving in 60 seconds. Right? And then I leave and I go to the car and I wait five more minutes. And then leave. <laughs> My time is coming. It's not quite as sure as God's time is coming. Right? This idea of a time is coming is to get us ready. And, and maybe you say, I'm ready. I'm already ready. Well, then I think this is to get us excited, to be excited about what's coming, to be excited about our destiny, to be excited about what the Lord plans to do. And you see then in verse 27, the title Son of Man. And this has appeared twice already in John's gospel. And yes, this is Christ's favorite title for himself. Yes, he uses it to emphasize his humanity. But it's also an official title of the Messiah based on Daniel chapter 7. <coughs> Jesus is a man, but he's so much more than that. He is the Son of Man, the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, who comes in Daniel, who comes with authority. And as the Son of Man, as the prophesied Messiah, it's appointed to him to execute judgment. So what's incredible is that God makes every single person stand before the Messiah. 
and they stand before him as their Lord, as their Savior, or as their judge. And no one gets a pass. All must come. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So we, we've mentioned that this passage contains one of the few references to eschatology in John's gospel. And here we have both the righteous dead and the wicked dead being resurrected by the voice of Christ. And the righteous enter fully into their blissful eternity, their reward, their blessed future. With glorified bodies and the wicked come to hear their destiny, their doom pronounced. There, there is an order to these resurrections, so don't take this to mean, you know, this is some general resurrection where everybody kind of goes at the, at the same time. It's just saying that all will be raised, but we know from other passages that there are various stages uh, of resurrections that will occur. You can look at Revelation 20 to see some of those. And it says that those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, don't get it twisted. Remember what's already been said about how to gain eternal life. John chapter 3, right? Right after John 3.16, he says, God, in verse 17, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Saying, you know, in his first coming, Christ didn't come to judge the world. He came to save the world. He came to provide salvation, to deliver from his own wrath, his own judgment. But when he comes again, he will judge. And on what basis will he judge? He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. And notice that in verses 28 and 29, those, those whose deeds are evil reject Jesus, while those whose deeds are good, it says, come to the light. What leads to condemnation, what leads to condemnation or salvation is simply whether or not you believe in him. It's not about being good enough to earn God's forgiveness. Uh, it's not about being good enough to, you know, your, 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 your good deeds. I always say, uh, I need to learn the name of the scale. You know, the, you know uh, if I say tippy scale, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. Tippy scale, you know, tippy scale, right? Somebody Google it. I don't know what it's called, all right? You put, you put the weights on one side and you put the weights on the other side and then they like balance out or they don't, right? And, and this is what everybody imagines, right? God has a giant tippy scale, probably labeled tippy scale of heaven, right? And, uh, and you come and you put all your... Good deeds on one side and all your bad deeds on the other side. And then you hold your breath while the tippy scale goes like this. And if it tips towards the good, come on in. And if it tips towards the bad, then the floor opens and, you know, you just get sucked down, I guess. I don't know. That's not how it works, folks. You're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture. What you're going to find is if, if there was a tippy scale, I keep using this term, <laughs> Everyone's scale tips to the bad. I mean, what a, what a silly idea that by doing something good, we can cancel out something bad, right? So, you know, I committed four murders, so I now need to save four people, and then I'll be back to neutral, your honor. It's not how it works. 
And the reality is we're so dead in our own sin, and we all know the depravity and the depth of our own heart and our own sinfulness, that there's no hope for us apart from the grace of God. And so it becomes a matter of the heart. Now, having said that, understanding that we can't earn our own salvation, we can't contribute one iota of good works to our own salvation, it all has to be done by Christ for us, and yet... The heart is reflected in our actions. And so Walt Kaiser says real love, real faith, leads to a life that shows it. Yet the life is the result of commitment, the result of eternal life residing in the person, not the cause of it. You understand? Cart and horse here. So Kaiser says, is John teaching salvation by works? The answer is no. He's teaching the necessity of committing oneself to Jesus. And so here we are. Full circle. Back to the beginning. What do you do with Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And that's the heart of the matter. We come face to face with that each person must answer for their own. Put, your, put yourself in your mind in the position of those who are listening to Jesus Christ. As he's addressing the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and yet there are, 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 are common people there. There are all the people gathered at the pool of Bethesda who recognize certainly their desperate physical need. But everybody probably standing in a different position. Some who are looking for and longing for the Messiah. Maybe who recognize their own sinfulness, their desperate need. Others who are living in their stubborn self-righteousness and pride. Who just immediately stiff arm and reject Jesus Christ. And yet we know there are those who are coming, who are listening, who are believing that Christ is everything that he says he is and can do everything he says he can do. And this is exactly where we need to be. Let's pray. Father, bring us to the feet of Christ where we can humble ourselves and bow before him and embrace him for all that he is. Lord, we love you and we want to honor you by honoring the Son. What an incredible message. This combination of a message of the, the power and the, the judgment and the future wrath of God, of Jesus Christ. And yet the fact that Christ himself has... <coughs> made a way for us to be saved and be rescued from his own judgment. We just see on display over and over again the, the power of Christ and the compassion and the tenderness and the love of that same man. Father, I pray that we would, any who don't know Christ, any who don't have an assurance of this eternal life in him would, would come to Christ. And for those of us who do and we have confidence in our future and and we can boldly proclaim it, help us not to be silent, but that our life, everything that we do, our, our words, our, our deeds, everything throughout the day would be honoring to Christ as we live a life of obedience, even as he modeled for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.